You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 25th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up, whilst the Finnish foreign minister calls for a timeout in talks with Turkey on joining NATO, co-applicant Sweden struggles on in relations with Ankara after a Koran-burning protest in Stockholm. We believe very strongly that we have done what was being asked by us and we do not see any reason for the ratification not to start. As German Chancellor Scholz reportedly agrees to send Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, we'll get the latest on the war from Kyiv. Two and a half years after the devastating Beirut explosion, we'll hear about the fallout in the legal system for Lebanon's elites. Then we'll head to Brazil to hear how newly re-elected President Lula da Silva's efforts to protect the Amazon and its people are going. Plus a diplomatic vino spat, today's newspapers and the latest from the world of music. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The United States and Germany are poised to send dozens of heavy battle tanks to Ukraine. Eight people are missing after a ship sank between Japan and South Korea. Kanye West could be denied entry into Australia as pressure mounts to keep him out. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, Sweden is getting nervous after the Finnish foreign minister hinted Finland may have to go it alone with its NATO application after months of delays due to Turkey's objections. Well, Charlie Salonius Pasternak is a senior fellow, a senior research fellow for the Global Security Research Programme at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki. Charlie, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what has triggered this possible split between the Nordic applicants? Well, I think what happened was um, the Finnish foreign minister, Pekka Havisto, he did something politicians don't usually do, which is speculate speculate about the future. So if you listen to it in Finnish, he you know, said, of course, our preferences and, and our goal, the whole process has been to do this together with Sweden. But there may come a time when in the future Finland has to consider going it alone if uh, Sweden's road is blocked. And probably some of this nuance was missed. And he, he then um, a few hours later walked it back, actually, or clarified it in a press conference. Um, but uh, clearly, Finland and Sweden would like to do this together. But now, uh, as, as Foreign Minister Havisto indicated, NATO and a few other countries have, have some work to do so that that's possible. And was there a strong sort of instant reaction from the Swedish government to these comments? Oh, yes. Um, not only the Swedish government, apparently NATO Secretary General called um, Foreign Minister Havisto basically instantly. Uh, mine and all of my colleagues' phones lit up as everyone's trying to figure out, is this a genuine policy change or is it what in American uh, kind of political discourse would be called a gaffe in that the foreign minister said the truth, which is, of course, we'd like to do this with Sweden, but there may come a time when we have to uh, split our ways for this. Um, and it's just that no one in his type of position has said that publicly before. It's been a kind of an open secret. 
And was there any reaction from Ankara? Did they sort of say that they might be willing to do that, or or how did they, how did they sort of respond? It's been in the discussions apparently since last fall, kind of on and off. Now it would be uh, a diplomatic landmine for Finland, but NATO also. Uh, just imagine a situation where Turkey would say, we, we're just about to ratify you, Finland, could finish domestic politics, take on the idea that Finland could join NATO, but is deciding not to, unlikely. And of course, then the geopolitical ramifications of Turkey going against kind of the will of NATO, uh, large allies, uh, Moscow would be overjoyed at NATO being split up this way. So uh, it might seem tempting uh, but it wouldn't necessarily be a great outcome, at least in the short term. Mm. And we've been talking about this for months here on Monocle 24. Turkey objecting to this. It's to do with longstanding issues with uh, Kurdish population in Sweden. You've also got upcoming elections, uh, presidential elections in a few months' time. And it's sort of being seized on by Erdogan uh, as a bit of a kind of hot button sort of distraction issue in the face of high inflation. But there is a new element to this now. Can you tell us about this Quran burning incident in Stockholm? Uh, well, it's it was clearly meant as a provocation. And, and in fact, uh, the gentleman who, who did it even has indicated that, well, he was kind of asked to do this. Uh, to me, you know, as the Swedish government said, it's something perfectly within the remit of uh, Swedish free speech. Uh, is it clever or the smart thing to do? No. But I will have to put some of the onus on the Turkish authorities, too. They very clearly realize this is not a Swedish government sanctioned thing. Uh, the Swedish government and the ministers have, have denounced this, in fact. So perhaps it would be on the Turkish side also clever not to rile up its own population about you know, actions of individuals. Mm. And if uh, Finland was in a position where it would have to apply individually uh, for whatever reason, if, if Turkey holds firm on this, if the Finnish people think, well, let's just get ourselves over the line and Sweden can sort itself out down the line, would there be any implications for NATO in just having one of them? Yes, it would be seen as a broad failure if NATO is one of its uh, pillars is this open door policy. If you have countries that fulfill the requirements, welcome to join. And uh, if you look at the kind of post-Cold War enlargement rounds, there probably haven't been two countries that have so completely filled the requirements. So it would be a political failure for NATO. Then on the military planning side, uh, things would be better than they are now because Finland could be integrated into the planning better and things could be done with Sweden. But I would say that the military failure or weakness would be smaller at this moment, partially because Russia is, of course, uh, bogged down in, in its uh, attack in Ukraine. But the kind of geopolitical ramifications would be far worse. As I just mentioned there in the headlines, uh, we're getting indications that uh, German Chancellor Scholz uh, has decided he will send Leopard 2 tanks and America will also send Abrams tanks. How much of a boost is that going to be for Ukraine this morning? And, and how quickly do you think those will be on the front lines? Well, I imagine that once it's confirmed, it'll be a kind of emotional, psychological boost. It'll be yet another step uh, in in getting Ukraine the weapons it needs, 
Um, now, what we've heard in terms of amounts from Germany, you know, a company's worth uh, is really obviously not enough. And, and as everyone who follows these things knows, it's not just about the tank, it's about the support, the mechanisms to get over maybe small rivers, artillery, all of this, and training. And this is where Germany's decision is probably going to enable countries like Spain, but also Finland to contribute and figure out how we will further contribute to Ukraine on this front. Yeah, you mentioned Finland there. They have these Leopard 2 tanks. We've heard lots from countries like Poland that have them as well that want to send supplies but needed approval from Germany. Do you think Finland will send uh, some of their own tanks to Ukraine now? I think so. Uh, Finnish ministers' authorities have said there's a certainly readiness. I mean, to understand that Finland has about 200 main battle tanks um, but they're in constant readiness within a few hours versus apparently in Spain, it might take some months, in Germany, maybe up to a year. Um, but in Finland, considering our, well, geographic position and history, they're in constant readiness. So Finland could send more technically, but it's likely to limit it also perhaps to a company because it's more risky for Finland to send tanks not right now, not being in NATO, than it is for Spain or, or, or Germany, for instance. And do you think, say, in, in sort of six months' time or so, if Finland finally does sort out its NATO application and it's in, they might be more willing, given that sort of, uh, you know, that common defence pact to, to send more assets to Ukraine? I think so, yes. And of course, in between, there could be compromises. You know, Finland could give some more tanks if it was compensated through the, you know, uh, European peace facility or some other mechanism so that it could place orders for new tanks that might arrive, um, you know, four or five years from now. So I, I think definitely, and uh, there's a readiness to do this. One of the things that Finland uh, is quite uniquely positioned to do is contribute training, because of course, it's giving the tanks is nice, but Finland has, owing to its conscription reservist system, a well-oiled machinery on how to train people quickly and effectively, and considering our land area, a lot of training grounds. So one of the things that's been discussed is maybe Finland contributes some tanks, but mainly it's about this training volume that Finland can contribute that most NATO countries, frankly, couldn't do. Charlie Salonius Pasternak, thank you very much. It's uh, t 11 past nine in Luhansk and 7.11 here in London. German media is reporting that Chancellor Scholz has finally agreed to send Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine and allow those like Poland who've purchased them to send them as well. There's also been reports overnight that US, uh, the US will send Abrams tanks, it, it seems. But in Kyiv, several officials have resigned from the government amidst an anti-corruption drive could that stall any Western supplies? Well, I'm joined now by Stephen Diel, writer, broadcaster and Russia analyst. Uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what do you make of this tank news? The tank news is very good news indeed. It's long overdue. Um, the, the Germans have been saying for a long time when requests have been made for their Leopard 2 tanks 
uh, that um, oh, this would only escalate the conflict. Um, this is a smokescreen. Uh, I can tell you exactly why the Germans have been very reluctant to send tanks. Um, it's a bit of a longish story, so please bear with me. But we have to go back to 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the unification of Germany that followed. Um, and also, of course, shortly afterwards, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, all those things together meant that there was a much stronger connection between Germany and Russia. Um, East Germans, of course, many of them, uh, including, for example, Angela Merkel, uh, spoke fluent Russian. Um, there are also, um, in Russia itself, there are people who are considered Germans because they're, they're descendants of Germans who went to Russia hundreds of years ago in many cases. Um, this provided a great link, and the Germans, uh, from a business point of view, very cleverly played on this by... Uh, building blocks of flats to keep the Russian Germans in place and then going there and starting to do business. And by certainly by the end of the century, um, by you know, 20 odd years ago, um, Germany was by far the, the Russia's biggest trading partner. Now, for five years from 2007 to 2012, I was running the Russo-British Chamber of Commerce. And I used to say often to uh, to our members, look, you know, we need to catch up with the Germans. Um, the, the Germans are doing more trade with Russia than anyone else. Um, and and it, it was absolutely huge. Um, I left in 2012 to go and do something else. And I'm very glad I did, because I, otherwise I would have resigned in 2014 when the Russians invaded Crimea. Um, but what we've seen since, of course, is that German business has carried on doing a lot of work with the Russians until... 11 months ago, 24th of February, 20, uh, 2022, uh, the Russians start the, the war in earnest against Ukraine. And of course, Western sanctions kick in and they've got to pull out. Now, there are, I'm not wishing to, um, uh, to insult German businessmen, uh, because business is business. Uh, but there are an awful lot of people in Germany whose businesses depended on their relationship with Russia. And they want that to be able to continue as soon as possible, so as soon as the war ends. So they don't want the war to go on any longer than, than it has to. And they are prepared to turn a blind eye to a lot that's gone on so that they can restore their businesses. Their businesses have been really badly hit by not being able to do business with Russia. It's not just Nord Stream, the, the gas pipeline through the North Sea. Um, uh, and, and this is what's really behind the German reluctance. And it's a real battle, of course, with Chancellor Scholz. Um, because he's got this very strong business lobby saying, you know, don't upset the Russians too much. Um, that's why they're not sending the tank. That's the real hmm. reason why they haven't been sending the tanks. So a lot of internal uh, machinations uh, in, in Germany. And we're also joined uh, from Kiev by uh, Natalia Gumanyuk. Uh, Natalia, good morning. What's the feeling there now that you know that these German and American tanks are on the way? Um, so just to... Um, to clarify i'm on, on the road uh already but uh i think that that's really welcomed there was a bit of the disappointment on uh saturday when there was a meeting in rammstein especially you know last week ukraine was uh really pressuring pressuring hard on this particular uh, leopard tanks in uh you know provided by germany uh but 
Uh, I think Ukrainians were really waiting till it will come. Uh, for a lot of people, I, I'm speaking about the, the, the army, first of all. This is a matter of life and death. I think that uh, one of the best uh, you know, phrases which I heard about this delivery of the weapon was from the uh, quite a famous veteran who's at that last week. Last week, there was the case, you know, there are a lot of people dying in the front line when another group of Ukrainian military died uh on the mine, uh, and they said, like, if we had these tanks, it wouldn't be like that. So that's the feeling for Ukraine. It's, it's, it's really vital. Uh, so it's definitely welcoming. And, and, and I think that this kind of the fact that it's happening so fast compared to the meeting on Saturday, uh, it's for a lot of people would be reassuring. Mm. Um, and Stephen, you know, it's not just the tanks themselves, but it's the message that it sends that the, the level of support is being escalated. How concerned will those waking up in the Kremlin be this morning? I think they'll be very concerned. Um, as you say, it's that message. They they might have taken some hope from last Friday's message with the, the group of 50 countries, um, where the message that came out from that was, was rather vague. The Germans were still saying, we're not sending the tanks. Um, that will have pleased Moscow. Um, now, um, the, the, it's the fact it's not only the tanks, it's also there's artillery, um, it's all the ammunition, of course, that goes with it. Uh, there are armoured vehicles. Um, there's there's a, a lot more behind this. Um, and this will definitely have the Russians worried because they know that um, that this Western equipment, and particularly the, the Leopard tanks, Leopard 2 tanks, um, are basically better than anything the Russians have got, and they are capable of beating uh, the Russian uh, the Russian tanks the the Russian um, T90, which is their most modern tank, the T90M, um, isn't a match for the Leopard. Um, we we know that. Um, we've seen they've seen quite a few destroyed already by Ukrainians um, with Western technology, um, and so th- this this is this is not good news for Moscow. This is a real this is a, this is a step up uh, for the Ukrainian side. Mm. Uh, at least it will be once these weapons all arrive and hopefully those that are based in Europe, which are the leopards, not the Abrams, um, they will be in, in use fairly soon that the, it'll probably take a couple of weeks training uh, for the Ukrainian army to, to get the best out of the leopards, but they're, they're easier to use than the Abrams. That's the other thing. When the, when the Abrams come from America, might, that might take a while and it'll take a lot more training. But once the Ukrainian army is, geared up and able to use these uh, these leopard tanks which should be by the spring when there's we're expecting a major offensive uh this will be worrying the kremlin mm. um and natalia several officials uh, have resigned from the government amidst an anti-corruption drive in the past 24 hours what can you tell us about this uh, i think it's pretty peculiar development uh, so some of the reshuffle some of the uh people who were resigned and were fired from the positions in the regions, they were pretty planned. And in some cases, we had a reshuffle when some of the ministers were dismissed. Uh, so there would be less ministers in Ukraine, uh, which is a financial reason. But it's interesting that there were a couple of the corruption scandals. Uh, for me, as Ukrainian independent and investigative reporter as well, I should say they are pretty low level, uh, you know, in a way, if you speak about the money. But the reaction is interesting. So, for instance, one of the scandals is about the deputy uh, head of the Ministry of Defense on the procurement of food for the army in the areas where there is no fighting. Uh, so what's interesting is that there, are, there was a leak uh, on Saturday and there was an article on Saturday by quite a trusted anti-corruption you know, journalists and investigators. 
At first, the Minister of the Defense wanted to kind of dismiss the scandal. You know, there is a debate, you know, how do you investigate the army in, which is fighting? But on Monday, there was a Parliament Committee on Defense gathering, and there was an investigation from the National Anti-Corruption Bureau and the prosecutors, uh, prosecutor, special prosecutor uh, office for the anti-corruption. And on Tuesday, the, the, the man was, though he was kind of praised by MOD, had to resign. So, in fact, it's very interesting that that fast is happening. There was a couple of smaller uh, anti-corruption scandal. If you speak about fund, you know about one of the uh, prosecutors, um, to top managers in the general prosecutor's office, who went to Spain to see his family because you know usually now a lot of Ukrainian families, when women and children are abroad, and he used the car. Uh, the, 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 his, you know, working car for, for for that trip, and it's followed up by the uh, by the bill that the state officials are not allowed to go to the holidays, even if to, to see their families. So it's interesting that there is this, a number of the, this type of the cases. And uh, again, one of the deputies of the president's office, Kirill Tymoshenko, there was no evidence of any corruption, but there were rumors. Uh, you know, and there was this unfortunate case that he had quite a fancy, he got a quite a fancy car. He was close to Zelensky for many years, but he also was resigned. Um, so, it, again, for us, it's interesting to see that even the debates in Ukraine, that whether you should criticize the army uh, or, you know, like investigate the government during the war, uh, it finished in the case that there was this investigation, there was a lot of some buzz, but in the end, there were the results. We would see, you know, what would be the punishment, but the people did resign. Mm. Well, and Natalia Gumanyuk and Stephen Diel, thank you very much. Still to come in the programme is Italian wine off the table in Ireland. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's been almost two and a half years since an explosion in Beirut killed 220 people and wrought devastation across the city. With the former Prime Minister and other top officials now facing legal charges, Leila Molana Allen, Monocle's correspondent in Beirut, joins us now to discuss the legal fallout. Leila, thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you bring us up to date on who's been charged and with what? So what's happened now is that for nearly a year since the previous judge who was looking into this investigation uh, ha was taken off the case and then the investigation was suspended, there's been over the years so much interference from politicians, from the established elites, and then suddenly... The beginning of this week, the judge who was on the suspended investigation, Tariq Bitsar, suddenly turned around and said, you know what, I'm reopening the investigation, I'm going ahead. Now, the public prosecutor, who is one of the people who is charged, Hassan Haidat, wrote to him and said, no, no, this investigation is still suspended. And Tariq Bitsar said, no, it's not, I'm going ahead. This is pretty revolutionary. And he's not only released a few of the lower level officials, like the person who was directing the port at the time, and said, really, these are low level people who weren't responsible for what happened. But he's charged eight new people. 
And these are big names. As I said, the public prosecutor, Hassan Weydad, you know, the guy who runs um, prosecution in Lebanon, the former prime minister at the time, Hassan Diab, the head of the incredibly powerful security internal intelligence agency, Abbas Ibrahim in Lebanon. I mean, these are people, these are the top dogs, the he former head of the army. And he's going after them. He's accused them and charged them with homicide and probable intent, saying they were responsible for leaving this enormous amount uh, of fertilizer in the port that exploded. So we're seeing what's very unusual in Lebanon, what has dragged the country down for so many years, these established elites being challenged. Now, whether they will actually come for questioning, they've been scheduled for interrogations in the second week of February, remains to be seen. But you know, pushing forward with this after two and a half years of the families of the blast victims standing outside Parliament, standing outside the courts of justice, begging for justice, begging for a proper investigation is a big step forward. And are people in Lebanon confident about the justice system being robust enough to handle this? People aren't remotely confident. As I said, you know, nothing has happened with this in two and a half years. After the explosion, uh, we in Beirut were told that within five days it would be established what had happened and who was responsible. And that obviously never happened. Now, the whole justice system in Lebanon is paralysed, firstly, because of deep, deep corruption. Uh, you know, multiple judges have been moved around at the top of this investigation. That happens with many other uh, situations as well. And, of course, so many of the elites in Lebanon are accused with high-level corruption, having brought the state to its knees to the horrendous situation Lebanon sees now. But on a daily basis, too, you know, there are other court cases going on. I've been standing outside the court waiting to hear about other smaller cases. And there are so many problems, as I say, you know, judges freezing things, uh, many of the lower level court employees simply striking because their wages in this economic crisis are now worth nothing and they refuse to come to work. So the justice system is absolutely paralysed on multiple fronts and there isn't much confidence about it working. And a public inquiry into the incident has been stalled for some time. Is there any sight of that coming back on? Well, that that's what this is, this investigation. Uh, that's the public inquiry. There have been calls for an international investigation, uh, but that hasn't happened. The head of the UN came out the other day and said, you know, he really, um, Antonio Guterres said he really supports the restarting of this investigation, but the UN cannot interfere in Lebanon's justice system. And part of the problem here, as I say, is many Lebanese are calling for an international investigation because they don't trust their own justice system. But because the international community currently still considers Lebanon's government as paralyzed as it is since the elections last May, they haven't been able to form a new government. Since the president came out of office in October, they haven't been able to elect a new president because they can't decide on one. So the government's totally paralyzed. But the international community still says that is the government and they must carry this investigation forward. So as I say, that public inquiry you're talking about is the same as mm. this investigation that has just restarted, we hope. But let's wait and see. And two and a half years on, what is life like in the city now? Life is very, very hard uh, in, in Beirut. And part of the problem is many people, because the Beirut blast was such a huge news grabber, think that that was the problem in Lebanon. But the explosion was really just the cherry on top of an already devastating crisis, political crisis, economic crisis. Three years ago, the Lebanese lira was 1,500 lira to the dollar. This week, it hit 55,000 lira to the dollar. The currency is worth nothing. 
Most of the economy in the city now has dollarized, which means that if you are middle class, life has become a lot more expensive and tough. If you are working class, and God forbid, if you earn a living wa- the national wage, uh, the national minimum wage, which is now worth $22 a month because you're still earning in lira, life is almost impossible. You spend every day just desperately trying to feed your children, trying to find petrol to be able to get around, trying to find medicine, much medicine is completely scarce in the country. There's no electricity. There's an hour of government electricity a week and people have to pay for incredibly expensive generators just to keep the lights on for seven or eight hours a day. Really, the conditions in Lebanon, over 80% of people now living in poverty are absolutely dire. And obviously those conditions will be incredibly risky, not just for sort of political stabilisation, but also for things like disease being able to spread rapidly, uh, another crisis could occur. I mean, is there any kind of big support coming in internationally or is the country just being left on its own? Absolutely. Before December, we saw cholera come back to Lebanon, spread across the country fast because there isn't the infrastructure, there isn't the uh, the sanitation to stop that. People are living in such incredibly difficult conditions. And Lebanon, I mean, Lebanon now is receiving the kind of international aid that we were seeing in places like Syria before three years ago. You know, it, it really is incredibly high on the poverty and risk indicators. And there is international support coming in. The UN is working very hard. There's lots of funding coming in. But fundamentally, all of that is just a sticking plaster, a Band-Aid, All of that is just emergency aid trying to keep people going. What the country needs is political reform. It needs financial reform. There's millions um, of dollars of aid coming into the country, not really doing much. There is billions on hold from the IMF. $11 billion has been on hold now for nearly four years from the IMF because they demand some financial reforms and because the government can't get itself together to actually form a new government and agree on its political squabbles within parliament. They cannot make those reforms, which are going to be very unpopular. They've got to do things like reduce the bloated... Um, government sector, you know, reduce public sector jobs, which is going to be very unpopular because people are used to having those jobs, but it's the only way to make these fiscal reforms. If they don't do that, this aid that's actually going to help the country financially reform isn't going to come in. At the moment, the country is just stuck. It's stagnating uh, because of this political stasis, and that is what needs to change. Mm. Leila Milana, Milana Allen, thank you very much. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The United States and Germany are poised to send dozens of heavy battle tanks to Ukraine. It comes days after both countries argued against sending tanks, a key request from Kyiv. It's expected Washington will announce as soon as today that it'll send Abrams tanks, as Berlin will dispatch its Leopard 2 models. Eight people are missing after a cargo ship sank between Japan and South Korea. Coast Guard search efforts from both countries are ongoing, as 14 people have been rescued from the wreck. The Jin Tian sent a distress signal late on Tuesday evening off the coast of Japan's Nagasaki. The Coast Guard says winds were strong when the signal was received, but there was no immediate word on what caused the ship to capsize. And an Australian minister says Kanye West could be denied entry into the country over his anti-Semitic comments last year, as public pressure mounts to reject Ye's application. The Minister for Education, Jason Clare, says historically others who have made similar statements have been denied visas. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
It's 7.31 in London and 4.31 in Rio de Janeiro. Newly returned Brazilian President Lula da Silva campaigned heavily on protecting indigenous tribes and conserving the Amazon. Now he's in office. How is that promise going? Well, Joanna Romero is a journalist who specialises in Brazilian politics. Joanna, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what was the situation under Jal Bolsonaro for indigenous populations and the Amazon? So ultimately, I think uh, it'd be difficult to deny the fact that it was quite terrible. First and foremost, uh, even prior to his term, uh, Jair Bolsonaro was well known for his derogatory uh, rhetoric uh, when it comes to racial minorities, and that includes um, indigenous people in Brazil. Um, A sort of uh, verbalization of... of, of, um, terms, for instance, or the usage of terms that have long been uh, considered offensive, banned, um, you know, sort of returned back to the 40s or 50s, if you like, in terms of the way in which he talked and dealt with certain aspects of uh, indigenous culture. But on top of that, if we look at just in terms of policy and the effects of this kind of approach, what we did see was a big support for the agricultural and mining businesses in Brazil, the agricultural lobby being one of the three big lobbies of Brazilian politics alongside guns and uh, evangelical, the evangelical lobby. Um, it's not too different from, from the US for any listeners who are more familiar with that context. And in terms of numbers, we can tell you that in the last four years, uh, mining in the Amazon basin has Uh, now grown to around an estimated 20,000 miners. It's just numbers of people doing it that we know of. Then there's also the illegal side of things. But just in comparison, the indigenous people in the area that we're talking about at the moment, uh, and I'm sure you'll bring up the um, Yanomami uh, people's crisis, Mm. um, they're they're estimated around 28,000. So merely 8,000 people more than those who are in their protected lands uh, doing basically mining, especially of gold, but not only. Well, you touched on it there. There was a recent medical emergency declared after hundreds of Yanomami uh, tribe children died from malnutrition. What happened there? Well, again, literally, in a way, as a consequence of this expansion of, of mining in the area, mining is a particularly destructive, polluting um, business when it comes to an ancient um, forest like the Amazon, as anyone I think can imagine. It doesn't stretch your imagination, does it? Um, it, it means pollution, uh, water pollution in particular, uh, mercury being the main polluter. Uh, And it also means bringing a series of illnesses um, and conditions that the indigenous people might be more predisposed or more vulnerable to. Um, And so this meant two things when it came to the current uh, crisis of the Yanomami, which, as you said, has killed uh, hundreds of uh, children in particular, um, but has also uh, uh, endangered the lives of adults uh, through famine in particular. But this meant a malaria bout, a really bad malaria bout last year. Um, And it has meant killing a lot of the sources of um, just nutrition of these peoples. Again, I mentioned mercury, fishing would be the one that was the main one. There's a lot of children who died out of um, what was estimated to be mercury poisoning, for instance. So, you know, all in all, a destruction. The reason why, in fact, 
uh, current president, Lula da Silva, yesterday or the day before, I think it was the day before, referred to uh, the policies leading and uh, dealing with indigenous people from Jair Bolsonaro as genocide, because mm. it amounts to uh, a devastation of the ways of living um, and ultimately of the people themselves, in this case, the Yanomani people. It's an incredibly strong word to use that, saying that it was a purposeful policy that we, was doing this. And obviously, during the last uh, few years of Jair Bolsonaro's uh, presidency, the world looked on sort of in horror because of this real attack on the Amazon. Um, do you think Lula's promise to protect it will hold in the face of that lobbying group? And also, the last we heard of Bolsonaro, he was checking into a hospital in Florida. Uh, is he still out of the country? As far as we know, he's still out of the country. He continues to uh, mention his his uh, malaise, if you like, his illness quite often, being that um, he is a vulnerable man who was stabbed in the very first uh, uh, presidential campaign that he did. Um, but if we go back to, to Lula's policies and your question of whether it would hold, um, I mean, the big question is indeed whether it would hold in the face of this massive lobby in terms of politics, especially since Lula's uh presidential term this time around is fragile, is vulnerable, given the very small margin with which he won and how divided Congress in Brazil is. That said, there's been quite a few things that uh, uh, Lula has uh, implemented over the last month. He just um, took um, power on the 1st of Jan, as we all know. First and foremost, of course, we saw the beautiful inauguration and that counted with uh, an indigenous chief, uh, Raoni Metaktire, I hope I'm not saying this wrong, um, who is a leading activist for conservation in the Amazon. And that was quite sort of a visual uh, uh, depiction of, of, of Lula's policies and promises. But then more importantly, perhaps one could argue, there's been the um, either the creation or the sort of reform of three institutions, the creation of the Ministry of Indigenous People, um, the uh, revamping, I guess, uh, re-strengthening of the National Foundation of Indigenous People and the Indigenous Health Department. All these led by Indigenous people and all of these led by Indigenous people who were put together in a short list compiled by Indigenous groups or Indigenous representative groups. So all of this makes a big difference in terms of Brazilian politics, which before would have a lot of these posts um you know, basically led by member figures, perhaps of indigenous uh, peoples, but of the same party uh, as the the administration, or of mm. allies within any alliances within Congress. Congress, in this case, we actually have indigenous people being leading and being picked by indigenous people, and that makes quite, even if only rhetorical, but it makes a very symbolic rhetorical yeah. difference from previous administrations. Well, Joanna Ramiro, thank you very much.
Well, it's 15.38 in Hong Kong and 8.38 in Zurich. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Latika Book, the journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, Firstly, the German reaction on this tanks news. Yeah, pretty hard to miss uh, what we expect today will be the announcement that uh, Germany and the United States will combine send tanks to Ukraine after much hesitation and delay. And the reaction, of course, in Ukraine has been uh, very positive. Andriy Melnik, who is the former ambassador to Berlin uh, for Ukraine, has has been quoted in the Financial Times this morning as saying he's just blissfully happy that after all that hesitation and delay, Germany's made this historic decision. And a, a quick reminder, I think, in Germany that the Greens Party is not what many people would think of Greens parties around the world. Anton Hofreiter, who's been leading the charge against Schultz, accusing him of being excessively caught on this issue, is quoted also in this article as saying this decision comes late but not too late. Mm. And what's so interesting about this is it unlocks not just tanks from Germany but also the ones that they've built and exported. I mean, what's the feeling about that? Yes, so now Ukraine is saying they want a powerful tank coalition, as they call it, to be formed. And this would really see lots of European countries sending their tanks that have been produced in Germany and requires Germany authorization for export to Ukraine. And uh, in this same article, Mark Rutter of uh, the Netherlands is, is considering also sending his tank. We have seen a couple of countries lining up and uh, really, really um, optimistic about what they can send. Poland, of course, leading the charge. So I think this is uh, not just a breakthrough in terms of Germany, but as has been really testament during this whole uh, war in Ukraine, a mobilisation of the Allies working together. And I don't think it's a terribly bad outcome to see Germany and the United States each pressuring each other to do a bit more too. Yeah, I'd say it's going to be a difficult morning in the Kremlin this morning. Well, uh, turning now to the UK and David Lammy, who is a senior Labour figure, has given a speech about the UK's relationship with the European allies. Yeah, this is a really interesting speech. It's the first meaty, I would say, substantial policy setting uh, from the Labour opposition. And of course, it comes what we expect will be two years from the election, which polls say at the moment they would win. So we're taking what David David Lammy says on foreign policy very seriously. He's he's the shadow foreign secretary. And he gave a big speech at Chatham House. I was there myself and it really was quite substantial, a bit light on detail. And we'll go through some of that. But Interestingly, there was barely a question. I don't think there was even a single question on Ukraine to, to Mr. Lammy. It was all about China And of course, it was all about Europe. And that was uh, triggered by this set of comments, these sets of comments from Mr. Lamy, where he said that he wants to actually build back relations with Europe uh, using this phrase that might be familiar to many, uh, taking back control of British foreign policy and using that to forge a new security pact with Europe, building better ties and and unleashing the trade that's really been uh, stopped as a result of Brexit. But I must say the room was filled with people who would have liked him to go further and perhaps be the old David Lammy, which was rejoin the EU. Mm. And he was countenancing none of that. And that's really the theme of the copy in the Irish Times this morning, which focuses all on Europe uh, and the US and barely uh, rates a mention on China, which really was the bulk of the questioning in that room. Certainly my copy um, for the Sydney Morning Herald was all about the Indo-Pacific, the 
that the UK under Labor would not drop what's been a serious repositioning on the Indo-Pacific under the Conservatives, although he would drop the language about tilting to the Indo-Pacific. Mm. Um, he would back the new security partnership that they've just signed with Japan, invest in AUKUS. So this is a, a very serious set of, po- of policy um, uh, positions from Mr Lamy. What was really interesting, though, is that he does want to overhaul the Foreign Office. He doesn't like the merger of the uh, Development Office, Difford, with the, with the Foreign the Office. the last Labor government, of course. Yes, exactly. But he didn't exactly commit to restoring aid funding to 0.7 of GNI. We know that the Conservatives cut that to 0.5%. And although he expressed a lot of envy about the growth of the French Foreign Service sending more diplomats out in the world, he's not exactly committing yet to any further funding for the Foreign Office. So there's a a lot of bones put out there. We'll wait to see the the actual meat, skin and flesh. Mm. And just on that point, I mean, that is going to be the hard line for the Labour Party to walk over the next two years, isn't it? This balancing act of knowing that in a real time of economic weakness, there is an easy lever to pull to try and boost Britain again, which would be to play the rejoin card. But they've sort of been through that in in 2019, the idea of having a second referendum. They're going to stay well clear of that, aren't they? Look, I think when you see people like Keir Starmer and David Lammy, who for a long time were advocating a second referendum on rejoining the EU, uh, of course, inherent in that is suggesting that the British people got it wrong when they voted to Brexit. When you see these figures coming out and saying our red line is we will never uh, lead a debate about rejoining the customs union or the single market. You can see how clearly this outcome has won in the British psyche. Mm. Of course, the execution hasn't won. I don't think there's many people, certainly not even in the Conservative government, who would say not that... according to the latest polling. That's think right. It's well. that, yeah. that thinks there's been any material benefits from Brexit yet. So I think the position is uh, quite sound. The public mood is quite ripe for closer ties with Europe. And to be honest, I probably think it is a Labour government and not the Conservatives that can really oversee this. Mm. And of course, even if we did rejoin, we'd never get the same deal as well. It would be very different than the one that we had. Um, and finally, another story you We know about dogs being able to detect things like an oncoming stroke uh, and And, and COVID and epilepsy and COVID. Um, But ants can detect scents of cancer, apparently. Yes, wonderfully smart, brilliant ants. So this is a a test conducted uh, by Parisian researchers where they exposed 70 ants to urine samples from um, mice. Some had cancer tumours, some didn't in the mice. Now, Over the the course of this study, which is reported in the the British Telegraph this morning, they found that the ants picked out those mice with the cancerous tumours and those without, which is an extraordinary development because that would actually lead the way to having ants, which, as the researchers are quoted as saying, um, would become biodetectors to discriminate healthy individuals from uh, tumour-bearing ones. But the best thing about the ants, of course, is they're easy to train, they learn fast, they're efficient and they're inexpensive to keep. Wow. I can't help thinking of Ant-Man in the Marvel Universe training all those ants. Uh, Haven't we fight, all just wish yeah. for a housemate like that? Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, Latika Burke, thank you very much. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. 
we know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, it's 7.47 in Dublin and 8.47 in Rome. The Italian foreign minister has decried plans by the Irish government to place cancer warnings on wine bottles as an attack on his country's identity and heritage, escalating a row over health labelling to a full diplomatic spat. Well, Monocle's Milan correspondent Ivan Cavallo joins me on the line. Ivan, uh, what exactly are these labels and why has Italy reacted so strongly? Yeah, well, we're we're still in dry January, but uh, the Italian foreign minister um, is protesting these these warnings are actually on not only on wine but also beer and spirits. But the 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 objection that um, Foreign Minister Antonio Tajani has is um, this labeling saying that uh, you know this is harmful because he's arguing that uh, you know a, a moderate amount of wine uh, in, in a diet. Uh, uh, is 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 fine, and, and doctors, uh, you know, tend to tend to maybe uh, recommend that uh, sometimes for, for patients. Um, and so this this protest, uh, which happened because the Irish are are now going ahead with this because the EU um, let them let let them do it. There was a, uh, a six month uh, moratorium where they where they could have made a protest, and the Italy, along with other uh, European wine producers, countries such as France and Spain and Portugal, are upset about this because they're concerned, of course, about about exports because. This is a lot of money. I mean, Italy exports uh, some 7 billion euros of wine uh, each year. And I mean, it's well known that excess consumption of alcohol obviously leads to a variety of health problems. So, I mean, is Italy really that worried that these labels are going to make much of an impact? Aren't people just going to still enjoy it in the same way? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the the Irish... um, position was, of course, you know, and, and, and was discussing that, you know, that excess amount of consumption, which is, of course, not not everyone, but there's that uh, that segment of society that, that tends to overdo it, uh, say, on the weekend. Uh, and so uh, that's their concern. And the, and the Italians are just a bit uh, concerned about this, as, as are other, you know, wine producing countries. And so um, they're, they're, they're discussing a, a plan to maybe, you know, protest this, obviously, because they, they feel that this is going to harm you know, obviously an important, you know, agricultural segment of their economy. And do you think there could be any repercussions for Ireland from Italy? Well, I mean, at this point, you know, the, uh, the foreign minister is, is, is possibly talking about making a protest uh, to the uh, World Trade Organization and saying that, you know, this kind of labelling um, can be quite, you know, damaging to, to, to uh, you know, various sectors of the economy, such as, you know, these, these wine producers. Um, and so this is something that's been discussed right now uh, because uh, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a massive uh, amount of uh, one's economy when you think about uh, all of these production of, uh, of wine, especially France, you know, because the leaders in, in terms of volume and also in terms of value are, are you know, Ireland's uh, EU neighbours, such as France, uh, Spain and, and Italy. And I mean, what's the word do you think from Brussels? Will they step in on this? 
Well, right now they're it's, they're they're in discussions. I mean, it was interesting that uh, the the EU executive did not raise any objections uh, over the six month period when Ireland discussed this this plan about putting these labels on, talking about risks to such as cancer and, and liver disease, and uh, the especially the wine producing countries uh, in the EU are are, are very uh, up in arms. And so I think you're going to see a, a lot of movement now, uh, especially from. Uh, from Italy trying to uh, counter this. Well, Monocle's Milan correspondent, Ivan Carvalho, thank you very much for joining us. You're with The Globalist on Monocle 24. To the music world now, and Will Hodgkinson is the Times rock and pop critic. Will, thank you very much for joining us. Yesterday was, of course, the announcement of the Oscar nominations, and one race this year that's interesting is the best song, because we've got the return of Rihanna with a pretty limp effort, it has to be said, from the uh, Black Panther film, uh, the omission of Taylor Swift, but also a fourteenth uh, nomination for Diane Warren, who famously has not won 13 of the previous times that she's been nominated. So what do you make of this race? Well, what I found really interesting was that, the, for me, the best songs by Longshot were the ones that came outside of the blockbuster system. So you had Sunlux, this is an experimental band from uh, New York, um, for Everything Everywhere All at Once, this song called This Is The Life, which is great, really unusual. There's a singer called Mitski who's on it, David Byrne from Talking Heads is on it. Very interesting, curious, but but also, you know, not inaccessible. And then, of course, there's an Indian song. It's not even a Bollywood song. It's 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 from the Telugu language Andhra Pradesh film, R-R-R, and the song is called, I probably say it wrong, Natu Natu. Again, fantastic. And I felt, I mean, the Rihanna lift me up, incredibly boring applause, uh, Sophia Carson, which is the Diane Warren song, I thought was personally fairly awful. Uh, Lady Gaga, Hold My Hand sounded like, basically, is is the Top Gun one. It's, it sounds like Take My Breath Away. It sounds like it's just, okay, we're doing a Top Gun song. Mm. So it's really interesting. The best songs for me, by a long shot, were the ones that were outside of the big, um, you know, the big Hollywood world. And who are you tipping for it? Do you think that they'll have a look in? Um, I'm tipping This Is Alive, Sunlux. I think it should win. It's it's by far and away, the, it's, it's just the most going on. Mm. Well, uh, turning now to another award ceremony coming up, and the Brits are taking place uh, next month. These are the main sort of British music industry awards. Uh, there has been controversy, though, because there has been a changing to the categories in recent years after uh, protests by the likes of Sam Smith. They are now non-gendered, uh, but that's resulted in an all-male uh, list for best uh, musical acts. Is that right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> You couldn't make it up. It is remarkable, really. Um, you know, this was the, this was the Brits trying to respond, as they always do, to um, to criticism. I mean, the Brits is ultimately a commercial entity. It, it rewards the people that, so, that have sold the most records. And uh, you know, this year it happens to be people like Stormzy. Um, but I think it was a big, big mistake, you know, to to have set it up that way. Sam Smith. I mean. It's it's not their fault, you know. Sam Smith is, uh, you know, felt that no longer rep, you know, no longer identifying as male or female was no was was you know not in any categories. And Sam Smith is one of the biggest selling artists in the world. 
and has an album out this week about that very subject. It's really about self-identity and, you know, sort of feeling good about yourself and accepting accepting yourself for how you are. So the whole thing's rather unfortunate. And Sam Smith did comment and said that, you know, he felt it was very sad. They felt it was very sad, the whole thing. But it's it's a big mistake for the Brits. And I imagine that next year we'll see quite the opposite. And do you think that other award ceremonies will be looking on at this and thinking, this is why we're not going to go down this route. It's going to lead to problems that women are being erased. I think it's I think unquestionably. I mean, you know, to to have to to set this thing up in a way which you feel is representative of modern society, and then look like Victorian society is uh, is not a good look. And there's also been another slight controversy as well, uh, slightly with an act called Fred again, and his PR team's huge efforts to sort of hide on Wikipedia how much he, uh, he comes from a very privileged background after the sort of wake of the whole uh, Nepo baby scandal. Uh, do you think that that's something that a award ceremony should look at more, sort of the, the artists and backgrounds that are included? Are we ignoring class in all of this? I think if they start looking at that, they're going to wipe out 90% of their artists. And so I think it's going to be, there's going to be real trouble there. Um, I mean, that's just, you know, it doesn't look good to be posh from uh, when you're, when you're in the rock and pop industry, you know, Mumford and Sons suffer from that, you know, quite clearly. Um, But there's a reality, you know, it costs money to, to be able to be a musician in the first place. It costs money to have extra, you know, cello lessons when you're 12 or whatever. So um, yeah, I think that is a, not exactly a red herring, but uh, not not a, not a party can really go down. Mm. Well, the Strokes and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs are headlining All Points East this summer. The return of so-called Meet Me in the Bathroom, Naughties, uh, New York, Indie. Do you think this is about to get a revival? I think it is, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that this, I'm showing my age here, but this is very much my era. It was a very exciting time. Uh, the, the Strokes in particular... I mean, you know, talk about sort of, you know, wealthy kids. They're very posh boys, but they had this incredible formula. They were very, very good looking. The music was raw and exciting. New York was exciting at the time. And everything just came together at a sort of perfect moment. And the Yeah Yeahs were from a similar scene. Um, and, of course, people like TV on the radio and various other bands, Interpol. Um, I think there's a lot of... It's funny enough, it was a very decadent time. Um, you know, it wasn't particularly... Probably wasn't particularly good for anyone, but I think... In a way, it's now seen as a sort of innocence because it was fairly straightforward. You know, it was late nights, smoking indoors, you know, this kind of thing. Um, So I think there's definitely a nostalgia for it. And the interesting thing with the Strokes, it's a bit like a band like, I don't know, the Velvet Underground before them. They've now been around long enough for an entire generation to have not been able to have seen them first time around. Mm. And they have this pattern of um, rock and roll glamour to them. So I think that it's, uh, yeah, I can see a revival happening. Yeah. Uh, And finally, uh, the BBC is scrapping its BBC introducing, whereby local radio stations would sort of introduce acts onto the radio and then they'd sort of escalate up international broadcasts. It found the likes of Florence and the Machine, Ed Sheeran, Little Sims and Lewis Capaldi. What do you make of this cut? I don't understand why it's happening. It's a very successful thing. So BBC Introducing also does a lot of concerts and they have a, a stage at Glastonbury and they have local presenters all over the country who are looking at and finding this stuff. And the thing is, it's very, very hard for, especially for bands, to break through. There aren't that many outlets. You know, there's 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 uh, there's not much TV anymore. You know, you're not going to go straight on to later with Jules Holland. So the BBC Introducing has been the one place where all these young bands and artists could get through. 
Um, and it's it's interesting because, you know, these things, I mean, I remember about 10 years ago, they were going to close Six Music and there's such mm. an outcry that it survived. We could see the same thing. Tom Robinson is is trying to save it. He's leading this um, campaign. And so many artists have already said, well, this this gave us our break. I yeah. mean, whatever you think of Ed Sheeran, the biggest artist in the world, Especially, he started. Yeah, if you come yeah. from, I think for myself, I know artists that, for, that have now working freshly from Jersey, you know, a very small place, a small local radio station has helped them build. Well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. Thank you to our producers, Laura Kramer, Marcus Hippie and Christy O'Grady and our studio manager, Nora Hull. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday London time. The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Thank you for tuning in.